I'm really stoked to talk to you because uh, we've worked together for uh, a while now and we've had similar interests and uh, we both like making courses and teaching people and helping people grow as software developers. So there's <laughs> a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, I'm really curious about Rust and your experience building a course platform and creating a course in that space. I wanted to ask before we, we dig into that though, like when you were sitting down to learn something new, something complex, whether it's technical or otherwise, What's your approach to learning a complex subject? I will say that I started my career with the ActionScript 3, like, Bible book, which if you've never seen it before, is like this giant, thick, like, meaty flash book, right? And I just sat down and I banged my head against it and sat in a computer lab that I had access to with the Adobe software that I had access to, and I just effectively banged my head against the book until it works. It that was the book I learned time. how to code off of. That's what's funny to me because that's literally like how I learned how to program was with that, with Essential Action Script 3 by Colin Mook was my introduction and just like oh, no. shouldered into it until like it finally clicked like, oh, this is what a class is. It took me so mm -hmm. long. I didn't get mm -hmm. it. For so long, I think, especially around that time when I was, I had no idea what programming really was. I was like, why are these symbols like that? Are they important like that? Or do they, does it need to be like that? Like, does the, <laughs> what is that? Just stumbling along. And like, that's the, really, that's the way that I then learned to. So like at one point I was doing Haskell professionally and getting paid for contracting, doing that. And the way I learned that is banging my head against it for years. And uh, it's the same thing with anything else. So now when I re run up against like a library that is under documented or something like that, I'm just like, fall back on the old process, just yeah. bang my head against it until it, it hurts quite a bit. And then for some reason, I'm a person that uh, keeps doing that. So I don't really have, uh, yeah, nobody's going to like that answer because that's a really painful answer. <laughs> just shouldering in and suffering until you have, have learned it enough to use it is kind of like how I might describe that. Yeah. What keeps you going? Like, what keeps you motivated when you're in that process, though? Because it's very frustrating. I, like, mm -hmm. personally, like, when I learned how to code, it was pre-internet. And I remember, like, I called it the Chapter 4 problem because I would get there and it would just be, like, I don't understand. This isn't for me. I give up mm -hmm. now. But what keeps you going when you, you like, how do you know it's worth it? How do you know it's worth it is a very different question than how do you keep going. <laughs> Maybe that's true. <laughs> so, like, when I learned how to program, I didn't know what programmers got. I charged... So I started my career freelancing and I was charging like $15 an hour or mm -hmm. whatever, right? Like, like basically what people always are like, yeah, yeah, this should be the minimum wage. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, it's better than working at McDonald's. So I guess I'll keep doing this. It's true though, so too. And it makes it easier to get gigs at that point too. And, and I did oh, the same, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like just For charging sure. a really low rate. So people will mm -hmm. say yes and actually give me the chance to, to try. There is something to be said for like when you don't have the skills and the expertise and the negotiation ability and the network and the audience and the, all of these other things, yeah. right? You accrue um, that stuff. Just getting something. Yeah. <laughs> but it also like later on you learn that, I don't know, software engineers don't make $15 an hour, but like, I didn't know any of that. So like the, the motivation for me is intrinsic, like it's internal. It's the only way that I do things is if I want to do things. Yeah. Yeah, I got recently diagnosed with ADHD and stuff like that. So like, yeah. it makes a little bit more sense to me these days. But like, I don't do well with authority and external deadlines and people telling me what to do and I all of that kind of shit. <laughs> Imagine that. So I don't if it's not internal motivation, if it's not something I want to be doing, if I don't have like my reason for doing it, whatever that is, whether it's I like, 
even to the extent of like I need to pay rent almost isn't good enough for me yeah. to keep money. That's just somebody um, else telling you what to do. And like point. I don't have people depending on me either. So if you have a brood, right? Like if you have people that are relying on you to pay their rent, that changes the whole perspective. Because I'm I'm such the yes. same way. If you tell me what to do, like my first instinct is like, huh, no, <laughs> just flat. It doesn't even. It's totally reasonable request. Just like <laughs> I don't no, even I'm, know I'm what not going to do that. Me to do, but no. I think that actually makes my next question more interesting because you're focusing on rust Mm -hmm. and you've chosen an area to to teach and educate in and to me based on what you just said that means that you know like this is something that you want to do that you really like that you think is a good idea and and what what drew you into the the programming language rust and why did you choose that as a focus in terms of your own expertise development and then as something to teach to others i i feel like on some level i've always had a fairly good like ability to pick the next technology I need to be working with. Mm-hmm. Like I picked React in like 2013, 2014, and that's been going for what, like almost 10 years now, oh. which is pretty nice. And like, obviously I don't pick everything correctly, but like Rust to me seemed like a thing that all of the smart people that I knew were talking about again. And I went to use the language and probably due to my personal contextual history with other languages and having worked across a number of them at this point, I saw Rust and I was like, well, it has all the things I like about like the JavaScript ecosystem, right? Like NPM for all of its warts and like the package management warts of JavaScript is really nice. Like I don't want to go back to a land where like, like go before modules or like C plus or something like that, right? Like I don't want, I mean, like at (laughs) at least Maven has some like dependency management kind of stuff, right? Like I I don't want to go back into a world where it's like, we expect you to have all of the source that you're ever going to compile in this repo. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So like NPM and then NPM scripts and all of like the higher level tools on top of that were like things that I really like about the tooling that I'm working with. And Rust has that. And it has that, I think, done at a better level, right? Like it's an iteration on to. that concept too, right? Like so yeah, they, they're yeah, iterating sure. on NPM, which is iterating on, you know, mm-hmm. Ru- Ruby Gems, which is iterating on, you know, like mm-hmm. the stuff that preceded before that yeah. too, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that like Rust came after all of these other things, mm-hmm. right? Which means it got to learn from all of them. Yeah. And like that doesn't always happen. Sometimes people are just like, oh, I want C, but like whatever, some minor change. And it's like, then it's just C without the ecosystem. Yay. Yeah. But yeah, so I saw that and then I started using Rust and I really liked it as a language in addition to all the tooling and stuff. And I saw the capacity for it to be like embedded in other languages like JavaScript. So this was like, I don't know, three years ago or something, I was making the decision to like get into Rust and whatnot. So that, that uh, kind of goes back and, and I'd assume over time, like when you first learned how to program and you sat down with the Action Script 3 book to like shoulder in, that's a mm-hmm. totally different experience than when you sat down to like learn and research Rust. So what was that approach like? Like how do you approach that? I'm sure it's similar, like you're still shouldering in, but you have a higher resolution insight into it also. So what was your research process when you you know, decided to teach Rust? When I decided to teach Rust, my iterations looked a lot different, right? Mm-hmm. When I decided to learn Rust, it was somewhat similar, but like I've been through, I don't know, almost double digits in languages these days. Yeah. Like, so like seeing new syntax to me isn't scary. Yeah, you're not um, having to learn what an array is and it's not a, a concept that you have to even think of as, a, as an yeah. example. Like, yeah, I can talk about things and make them sound scary just like anybody else, right? As a teacher, I try not to do that. Yeah. But yeah, when I go to learn something for like the perspective of teaching it, 
you have to learn it on a much deeper level, right? You have to learn it because people are going to ask you really random questions about things that you never thought about. So like researching to teach is researching to figure out what everybody else's problems are. Whereas researching to learn is like researching to get past your own roadblocks, which you can often skip without even like really addressing, right? But if you're researching to teach, you have to go and you have to find the things that everybody else is running into. You have to aggregate those into, okay, most people will hit this, a bunch of people will hit that. And then like, these are the things I need to explain to like, get everybody to the next step without without doing the thing of like, I'm going to dive into three concepts you don't know because I'm smart, right? Get kind of showing off your knowledge versus helping them solve their problems, yeah. I guess would be. Yeah, I, th I feel like that's a problem a lot of people fall into where it's like, I'm going to show off that I know this when often teaching to people who don't know what you know, you will look like you don't know what you're talking about to people who want to be aggressive, yeah. right? Or whatever. And you look at them and you're just like, yeah, but I'm talking to somebody who doesn't know what any of that is, right? Like, I yeah. can't use these words. I can't use the word idempotent if you don't already know what that is. Because that's just layering, like, another big technical word on top of whatever I'm trying to teach you. I'm going to say it does the same thing every time you call it, right? Like, there, there are different ways of talking about things that you need to do, definitely. Jargon has its place, and it's like, but it's it's like a lossy format, right? Like, it's a compression of of concepts into something you can speak tersely and then it can be, be thrown around in, in uncomfortable ways maybe or just the context well, where it, it isn't, isn't the, it um, isn't appropriate right like in, in in some context it's the higher level like the next steps to like what we've talked about in the past and what we've been talking about for years at this point in the instructional design arena mm -hmm. where what you're doing was building basically higher level heuristics and abstractions and procedures and like building on top of uh at some point Talking about things being commutative or idempotent or whatever big word you want to use, like, means something to the other set of people who are also speaking at a certain level about a certain thing yeah. in a certain way. That very often is not what you do when you're teaching somebody something, but it is something that two people on the same uh, sort of wavelength can say and communicate ideas faster, right? It's like not it's everybody like needs to get to that point. But like, it's just another aspect of that. Yeah, it's like impression. Optimi optimization at the end of the day is how I kind of look at it. Because, you know, like I, I find it's in you get down into like initialisms and, and whatnot, where we're reducing things into <laughs> just purely their initials when we're having a conversation. It's like, hold up, I have no idea what, what, <laughs> what that even means. And I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, it's like you have to be aware of that, especially when you're teaching people. And mm -hmm. introducing new words and, and not supporting them is, is huge. With Rust and, and you're designing it and you've decided to teach it and, and you have a course, what, what are people looking for? Like what is bringing people to Rust the language in terms of their problems or the difference that they're trying to achieve with a new programming language? Like? I think it's, I see really like two big groups. I see the people who are either already working somewhere or had just got a new job and now they have to deal with Rust on some level. Right. So they have to figure it out and they have to be productive at it because now, for some reason, it's their job to deal with it. And then there's the other group of people who are like, and I focus on more dynamic language people like JavaScript, Python, Ruby, like that, that kind of yeah. I don't really teach for C developers. That's not to say the content doesn't work for C developers. It's just that, like, I'm going to talk a lot less about memory and registers and what, what have you. And I'm going to talk a lot more about like things that JavaScript people care about. But yeah.
Kind of to switch gears and and maybe talk a little bit about instructional design philosophy, what makes a good course, in your opinion? I think the higher order bit for me is that transfer, right? Like, if you do a course and the person ends your course and they're like, went through a course, but like, I don't really know what to do with any of this. That's That's not a good course, right? Like, you failed something for somebody. In this case, it's somebody specific, but like transfer, start- transfer being like knowledge transfer, where they're taking what they have learned in your course and then applying it to whatever is going on in their life. Right. If they yeah. can't use what you taught them to do what they want to do, then they are no better off than where they were when they started. Right. Yeah. If, if you're at the same place when you start the course and when you end the course, like the course isn't a good course. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the That's person true. hasn't hasn't learned anything. Well, so, has to make a difference, right? Like, so if there is no difference, yeah. then yeah. So like they have to be able to do something that they weren't able to do before. And that's what I, that's what kind of what I mean when I say transfer. How do you know when, you know, like when you're watching people or, or talking to people that are actually involved in your course right now, like how do you know that they are meeting their goals when they're going through the, the process? So the, we have a discord for the rest adventure stuff mm-hmm. and the people in the discord are doing various things like for realistically, sometimes I won't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Some sure. people go through, go through the workshops, do all the work get all the stuff done and then they walk off to their job and they start doing it at their job and they really just like they're done they never come back or like they learned the thing they needed to learn and now they are using it yeah. uh, which is great but like not something that you can necessarily guarantee that they come back and tell you but there are people that come back and go oh i did like the 2048 course or whatever and i made this game and now i'm going to make a clone of wordle on my own right so like when you see people starting to do that i think that's when you have a thing that is capturing that goal of like the transfer, right? If the people are able to take the course and then feel like they can go do their own thing, mm-hmm. even if they like hit a bunch of roadblocks when they go to do it, if they feel like they can do their own thing after they do the course, there's something good about that, right? And you can follow that. And then when they try to go do their own thing and they start running into roadblocks, you get that feedback because they're in the Discord or whatever. And they're like, oh, I'm trying to do this thing. We didn't really cover this in the course or whatever. Have you had any success stories since you started teaching that were like just made it just feel like this is totally worth it? I think anytime anybody ever does one of my things and is like, yeah, I accomplished it. (laughs) I did what I set out to do before I I used your thing is like just such a bright star moment, right? Whether that's like, oh, I eventually got a promotion from going through all of your stuff or like I learned this thing and now I feel more confident or just I did like I have that open graph images course. Right mm-hmm. on uh, again. I love that one. A bunch of people go through that. It's kind of hilarious because a lot of people like go try to do simpler versions of it, then eventually realize they actually need the thing the course does, and they <laughs> end up they like they've known about the course the whole time, yeah. And then they eventually hit a point where they're like, oh, that's why this exists. Okay, and then they go through it, and then they have their open graph images being generated in a serverless function, cached on Cloudinary, whatever, and they're just they're like they have it, they have the thing that they wanted in the first place, and that's a success, right? Like. When I think about like the Rust Adventure stuff, I'm thinking about transfer skills, but even on the level of like this project is a useful project, it teaches you a number of skills like serverless functions, a puppeteer, playwright, whatever, cloudinary. But the result of that course is really like you have the thing that you wanted when you came to it, right? It's a kind of a direct action course as opposed to a uh, curriculum course. I think that's really interesting in on a couple of levels. And and one of them is how do you decide what to build for an example, either through a course or, you know, whether you're, you're writing or how do you decide what the example is going to be? I think people struggle with that a lot. That's definitely research, right? Like there's either 
there can be problems that I have, right? Mm-hmm. In which case it's like it's a it's a it's like it's a problem that I have, like the open graph image thing, where then like that's a thing that other people also ran into. Or it's research and I'm researching like what problems other people are having and what they're having trouble with. And then you build a example basically based off of that, right? Like what example can I build that addresses the problem these people are having in a way that lets me explain and build up to it so that when they end it, they can go off and do whatever they want whenever they want. When you're in the design process, do you get any feedback from people? Do you have a, a way of sharing that or, or, you know, beta testing for lack of a better term, the content from, you know, like during the new workshops or, or how do you approach this testing cycle and getting feedback from? Yeah, I, it's a very large spread actually from writing blog posts and seeing how people react to it to doing mm-hmm. YouTube videos and seeing how people react to it and live streaming and seeing what people, what questions people have when they come into the chat all the way through to like, I've now gone through a bunch of the problematic stuff. I've designed a curriculum or a set of lessons or whatnot. And there's a set of videos now that are in like their raw cut format, like a rough edit. And I'll give the rough edit to somebody and be like, "Does like, do you want to go through this? Like actually do it. And finding the people who will actually like full on beta test something for you and actually do it <laughs> and then actually provide feedback is a very hard thing to do on its own. But if you can find that group of people, then you're pretty good, right? What What is the live streaming? How has that influenced your kind of process and design in terms of developing a course? I think that's really interesting. It's something you've been practicing for quite some time. The live streaming is really interesting because it's like an early testing ground, right? It is a, I, I can do very early, like I have a, a inkling of an idea about something, right? Or... I have a, just a thing I want to accomplish or something like that. And I can take that to a live stream and nobody really expects polished content on a live stream. They expect Mm. like to be able to hang out and talk to you. And it's a, at some point I imagine we'll talk about marketing, but like a deepening of a trust relationship with the people that I interact with on a regular basis around all of the, the rust courses and material and stuff like that. Live streams are really good for like, being I'm a person and you're a person and we're yeah. talking and like you can ask questions as I'm going through this if you don't like recognize something and like I can answer your questions but also every question somebody asks is like a marker a note a point that I go back to mm-hmm. right so that's what that is My <laughs> I haven't done right? a lot of I haven't done a lot of live streaming but I've done in-person workshops which in in a way is a live streaming in meet space I guess. And it's the same thing, right? Like if you do this and you're either running through your examples, but the the times when people actually ask questions, and if you do these things more than once, you'll notice there's these natural places where people ask questions or you can, you know, you'll see Mm -hmm. the looks on their faces or the questions come up in chat. And I think that's like that experience is pretty fantastic in terms of design because you don't have to have, it's not as polished and permanent, I guess. I think that the people will always feel like they're bothering other people, right? Like they always feel like, oh, I shouldn't ask this. I'm bothering them. Oh, this feels like a silly question. Like I shouldn't have to ask this. I should just go figure it out on my own. But the key insight there is that what they don't understand is that every time somebody asks me a question anywhere on the internet, in my life, whatever, that is a thing that I know that somebody had to ask. And that feedback is really invaluable when it comes down to actually building courses and curriculum and doing the actual work of developing something that addresses the problems that people actually run into, right? Mm-hmm. 
So like, I'm always happy to like get questions and like, sometimes maybe I don't know. Sometimes maybe I don't have the time sometimes, whatever, but I'm always happy to like get a question and then I can at least be like, Oh, that direction. Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I think that's a common problem just and people want to like either figure it out or don't want to pester us and us being the anybody, they don't want to pester anybody about yeah. whatever, you know, they think their question's bad and won't ask it. And, and it's really true that I, the, the, the old phrase, there's no bad questions, I think really kind of holds up. Yeah. I have, uh, I have feelings about that phrase because like there are no bad questions if you're doing it while you're learning while whatever, but there are bad faith questions. Yeah, I, I, right. I would. Yeah, I think that there's definitely an asterisk. There, no, no bad questions asterisk asked in good faith, because you can definitely. I mean, the internet's full of trolls. So it's a wonderful and horrible place. You, you've been running your course for a while now, and it hasn't. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. I think we're about six months in, and I don't know if this has been a concern yet. But maintenance of video courses, in particular, maintenance of courses in general, I think mm-hmm. is can be difficult. And I was wondering, you know, how much time are you finding yourself having to maintain versus working on new stuff on the horizon course maintenance for me is tied to version bumps in the Mm. like libraries and stuff right i find that to be a very useful like point at which to revisit the content because there's a natural change right so for example bevy came out with like 0.6 and the workshop that i initially did is 0.5 so there are i don't want to call them substantial changes to the workshop, but there are opportunities to remove some of the accidental complexity of the workshop. So it's a good opportunity for me to dig in and be like, okay, should I redo these videos or not? And I think those are ones that I'm redoing, but the say digital garden CLI course, or like another CLI course or something like that might just need a note, right? It might just need like a, Hey, you know, you're going through this video and while you're going through this video, you're going to end up with like this one thing that you need to type in addition, right? So like, it's definitely like when the software version comes out, that's when I deal with, do I redo the thing or not? That's when I revisit, is the instruction here actually achieving its purpose, right? Because at that mm-hmm. point, I will have like a bunch of feedback from people who have gone through the courses and whatnot. And I take that into consideration as well. When you're, you're, you're thinking about your courses and, and it's multi-modules and you have existing modules and, and there can be improvement there and, and refinement versus creating additional courses that cover more ground, how do mm. you balance and like maybe what's the trade-offs between working on new content and refining what exists already? Well, like I said, like the, the refining the old stuff happens at particular times, yeah, right? So, so there, and it's part of the reason I have a trigger for that, right? Because I, I could do whatever I want to do at any given time, but software bumps and that there are enough version bumps of libraries or crates or whatever that are used in the workshops that that makes a natural point at which to revisit. So like for Rust Adventure, it's a series of workshops, right? Like a lot of people call it a course or whatever in, in total. And that I think is a, it's a marketing thing that I probably have to lean in more yeah. than lean away from. Like just everybody like is going to just customer, call it a course or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like, like, yeah, meet people where they are basically. Right. Like I don't need, I don't need people to call it workshops. I don't need people to whatever, but it, it is a, a whole set of things. Right. So having a corpus of content that is, in a couple different streams is where my head is at for that. And that needs more new stuff, right? So I can tell you there's a couple of 
streams on Rust Adventure right now. One of them is like a CLI stream, and one is like a games stream, and one is like a serverless stream. And then there's a language stream, right? Like, so the first phase of Rust Adventure was basically answering the question, what can you do with Rust? Because that was the most common question I was seeing from people. It was like, I like, what can you even do with this? And like having a bunch of workshops that address that question, like you can do serverless functions and you can use CLI tools and you can build games and you can whatever made a lot of sense. So there now needs to be like additional from beginner to advanced in each of those streams. And also a from absolute beginner to being able to take the workshops stream itself. So like the new content is really important in the sense of Rust Adventure. I don't know that's true everywhere because I feel like a lot of other places do very different kinds of workshops. They'll mm -hmm. do one on this framework and one on that framework, and they don't really connect. But I'm trying to build more of a larger curriculum with Rust Adventure. So, Do you have an idea of what, what finished looks like in terms of the, the broad curriculum? It's a really good question. There, I have the idea that I have in my head right now, right? And that mm -hmm. will not be the finish line, I don't think. But there's the like language learning stream, like the, the intro to Rust, like why would I use it? Who cares? Some syntax, some like, here's your first program kind of stuff, right? And then there's the use cases streams. And then at some point there is the, I don't need another CLI project. How do I build really good CLIs? And that's like the cap capstone on the end of like the CLI stream set of workshops, right? Yeah. It's like the, like, do I include flags to output as JSON or human readable or whatever, right? The like higher level questions that you can now consider now that you have the underlying like factual skill of this is the crate I'll use. These are the libraries I'll use. This is how I write like a thing that accepts arguments or whatever. So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of like the desired end goal for probably this year is the, there's a bunch of streams, they lead into each other. You can go from language to use cases. And then at the end of the use cases, there is the, this is how you do this on like a, on a meta level. I think what's interesting is because the meta level you describe, you know, like, like what are the considerations that go into really building a great CLI is that expands beyond boundaries of a particular programming language. And that's something that you could probably do in many programming language and might even be useful as a, you know, like as a learner to, to watch something like that, just so I have a good idea of that. And then, yep. you know, like think about the language level stuff as a separate concern even. Yep, for sure. I, I like, I don't think you need to like sort of take the language workshop before you take the use cases, but it's important to like, just in time, provide that information, right? Like yeah. if somebody wants to go through the link, there are people who are like, I need to learn the syntax and I need to learn like the hello world before I can do anything with anything else. And then there are other people who are like, so I'm pretty used to building like sharing SaaS services as my first project. I want to do that. And then they'll go do that and they'll like, they'll need little tidbits, like they'll need to reach out and you need to have those like reach out points available to them. But I don't think that everybody starts in the same spot or ends in the same spot, right? It's really interesting, the, the idea that people have their own kind of pet project where they learn every language in the same way. Yeah, well, one of the things that people try to do a lot with, because they grew up in a traditional CS education, like C language environment, mm -hmm. is they try to implement linked lists. And they're like, this is a simple data structure in my head. This is the basic data structure because they've been told it's the basic data structure or whatever for years in CS degrees and stuff like that. Interviews. 
Yeah, I mean, like that's not necessarily true. So there is some aspect of like, if you're writing Java and you want to move to like Haskell, you don't want to write your Haskell as if you were writing Java, right? Yeah. You want to learn the new paradigm. So there is something to the effect of like, maybe your pet project isn't applicable to the new situation and maybe you should reconsider. But there is definitely like a whole bunch of approaches that people take and they're not necessarily linear, which means that like they may jump from halfway through the 2048 course to like start to do the serverless course because they had something come up at work or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And the way that I think about it is like Super Mario 2D World levels is the way that I think about Rust Adventure. So like there's the serverless world and the language world and the whatever, whatever, right? At some point you unlock the other worlds, but that doesn't mean you like completed every level to the extent that it can be completed. Or All whatever. side quests. And yeah. Mini right. games and that sort of thing. Yeah. I love that. I, I actually, I think the video game and, and kind of map analogy works pretty well for a lot of this in terms of learning and, and how we, we structure it. There's a lot of platforms out there. There's, you know, platforms like Teachable and Podia where you can just go in there and you can throw your videos up there and <laughs> kind of kind of run with it. And I'm, I'm wondering why wouldn't you use something like that to just publish your course? And because you've gone through and built a, a custom course platform. Mm -hmm. and, and why not just use something kind of off the rack where you can self-serve and, and go from there? I saw this question and the questions that you sent to me. And I was like, my, my response is like, convince me to use one of them. Right. Uh, well, their salespeople <laughs> like, might be able to. Um, I don't, I, you know. Ease would be my, probably my, my strongest one would be like, like, it's really easy. You can just put your videos up there, Chris, and push a button and you're all of a sudden you're selling subscriptions. So it's easy peasy. I mean, that's fine and all, but like zero control over so many things, right? Like from payment structures to what you can put on the platform to mm -hmm. like whatever. I guess the way I'll phrase it is like YouTube has a really good UI for setting up a playlist and handing somebody a link and them being able to go through it with comments and whether people like and dislike and like all of that kind of stuff. If you're not doing a better job than YouTube is, why should I use your thing? Right? Yeah. Like there is a lot of value in putting up like that YouTube playlist or long video or whatever, because if it's useful, then people will watch it. And then you start developing that relationship with them, et cetera, et cetera. Like you've been helping people. Right. When I think about like, why did I build my own, you called it a course platform. I don't think anybody's building course platforms, really. Uh, platform has a very specific meaning in my head. It means that other people are building businesses on top of your thing. And You're nobody's a really doing that. Thing. You're building, yeah, but it's one business. It's my That's business. That's fine. Right? Like, it's not a platform. It's my product. It's your, it, yeah, but it's your platform. It's, I mean, it is. It's like your platform. It's literally you are standing on it, and you are the only person standing on it. I'm just going to argue with you for just a second. Sure. And we'll yeah. Move yeah on. No, but like semantically too. speaking, <laughs> like I agree. Like in in the software world, when we consider a platform, would be something where other people are using it, where it's white labeled mm -hmm. or, or something. But I think what what you built is is absolutely a platform, and you could take it, and other people could use it. Whether you chose to do that or not is probably, and it's also a different problem space, and there's lots of new questions that come up. But I'm I'm going to just say. <laughs> That it, maybe it's, we don't call it a platform, it's your soapbox, but like it is yours and, and you are standing on it and you are delivering your courses on it. So for me very much, like I think it is, I think of it as a platform and that's, that's, there's just kind of difference. I do understand where you're, where you're coming from. I just wanted to I think soapbox is bit. even worse of a term. Oh, oh, it absolutely is. I, I'm doing that thing where you offer like a worse alternative and in, in hopes that you can win your semantic argument. Yeah, for sure. It is a worse term. Yeah. I mean... If, if there's one person on your platform, it's not a platform, right? Like it has to be enabling other people 
like YouTube is a platform because people build businesses on YouTube and have multiple businesses that YouTube is helping drive. You could get into this for so long because like the we users, could. We, are, uh, like your learners should. are there standing on your platform with you. <laughs> this really ruins the rest of my questions too, because I have the word course platform over and over again. But so we'll get That's, beyond that. I think we can say. I will accept not. your platform as I have been for the, the previous whatever half hour of this podcast. So, uh, so if you're delivering a course. Yeah. What, what are the essential like software features? Like what is it? What does a, a course need to get delivered to the learners that they want to learn from it? Uh, access to the content. That's it. That, if, like, I mean, if you talk about like, what do you what does it need? Like really need mm -hmm. it? You, like you need to offer your stuff in a way that people can access it. So like. Then, then what are when your I needs, about, I guess, is the other side. because So that's pretty basic, right? So for them, they just need to have access and, and some way to, to kind of trudge mm -hmm. through it. So what do you need, like, as the person that's trying to deliver this to them? What, what are the essential features for you? So, so it, uh, it sounds basic, but it enables you to do things like think about Notion as a course hosting provider. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Right. Where, like, okay, we're talking about my needs now. I need to be able to upload videos, and I need mm -hmm. to be able to do that in a way that isn't, like, take me three hours or something like that because like yeah. that's awful it needs to be able to like i mean that's it right you need to be able to upload your stuff and people need to be able to view it that's the fundamental requirements of like a course platform i think that for me i want to be able to go beyond that i want people to be able to like for example write rust and run tests on the website without having to install rust and like that's something that i can't get from teachable it's something i can't get from podia it's something i can't get from notion or whatever and it's a reason for building like a separate site but like when it comes down to it i don't think that anything really needs to be there other than the ability to like get the information there and the ability for people to like see the information what about things I, like, like like authorization and progress and and collecting payments so you can pay the rent i mean all of that uh, is dependent that, that kind of on like what are you trying to achieve right like you're talking about a course platform not a not a subscription service that I can use to like fund everything for the year and whatnot, right? Like, do you need user accounts? Not if it's free, right? So like, it depends on what your course is, right? Is it a free leader to like other stuff that you're, then your platform is like super simple, right? It needs to be accessible. Uh, it needs to be like SEO oriented, right? Mm -hmm. And like those things change when you start thinking about how am I going to do a paid course platform or something like that, right? If you, and then you need to make decisions about like, okay, is what pieces of it is going to be accessible? Is this going to be able to hit Google at all? Right? Like, is Google going to be able to bring people in for me? A lot of people just like ignore that question and default to no, right? Because um, it's the easiest way to do it. At which point you need like user accounts, at which point you need like payments and stuff, things like that. Video playback is one that I'm using, obviously. Or I guess not obviously to listeners, but like <laughs> obviously to the person that I'm talking to on the podcast right now. I don't think that comments are like required because I think that's supplemental to like if you have a space for people to make comments like Discord or something like that. You some don't sort of community outlet, out. right? Like they, there's some sort of valve where they can go and interact with other people maybe having the similar experience as them. Yeah, I mean, like that's a value add if you can pull it off, right? Not everybody wants to maintain a community. Not everybody wants to build a community. Not everybody wants to do like Discord-based support, uh, stuff like that, right? But like if we're talking about all of the tools that you need to use to like actually build a course platform, you need to be able to respond to people's emails and you need to be able yeah, to accept a, payments and create user accounts and support, do track support progress. Load and, might be a, <laughs> a big one that is often overlooked because as soon as you start, I mean, exchanging 
products for dollars, right? Like at that point, people are going to have needs and yeah. you are going to mm -hmm. want to meet them. And especially if you're taking money, right? Like now you need to- Can you to process meet. a refund, for example, right? Like uh, Rust Adventure, I've been very lucky. It's been very successful. I've only had to process like two refunds, but I still had to process two refunds, right? Good average, I think, actually. Oh, like, it's that's a, that's Because that's, that's a great metric. And I've heard this a lot, right? Like, if you are, are seeing a lot of refunds, then it's like you're either selling something and they don't understand what they're getting and it just mm -hmm. doesn't match up to expectations. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, like, I think that's a kudos for that because that's a great metric. It's, it's one of the metrics that I, I think about. And I'm like, yeah, most people buy the highest, like, version of Rust Adventure. And I've only had to give two people refunds. And like, I instantly do it, right? If somebody asks for a refund, I just give it to them. Like, there's oh, no, yeah. like, that whole aspect to it is just like, just give it. And then like, I'll, I'll ask them some questions and like, maybe they stick around and answer, maybe they don't. But, but yeah, I mean, I, that's one of the things that I'm most sort of proud of in a way, because it means that people are buying it and then they're not looking at it and going, dang, I wish I didn't. Was there, any, was there anything surprising when you were building it? I know you're an extremely technical person, so but at, at the same time, was did anything kind of jump out either technically or otherwise when you were building your course delivery um, mechanism? How easy video was to get working. Yeah. Because the last time I seriously dealt with having to like do video was like probably Flash era. It's come a long ways. Oh, and then uh, like the HTML5 video element came around and then it really wasn't usable. Right. For, yeah, it's still not, it's not YouTube, right? Yeah. Uh, is the way that I'll put it. But it's something that like people have, there are players out there and there are services out there to deliver the video. And like, I didn't have to build video delivery infrastructure. If I think if I had to build video delivery infrastructure, like, I don't know, RTMP shit or like something like that, that would have been like, Ooh, do I really want to do this? That would have been a moment at which like, okay, can I sacrifice like building my own thing and go like do something half on Teachable, half somewhere else or something like that. Or Teachable like, just uses Wistia. I've heard of Wistia. I have not so used So they're Wistia a delivery myself. platform and they're basically marketing. And they actually, when we built Egghead, uh, Chris, the CEO of Wistia is an, an amazing person and just gave it to mm -hmm. us for free, uh, which like, at the time video delivery was a real pain in the butt and it's improved a mm -hmm. lot since then, but gave it to us for free is great. But like that's... Teachable did not build their own video delivery infrastructure. That's the point, right? Like, and they're they're a, a multi-billion-dollar company, and they did not. They avoided that sticky wicket and left it to you know people that are. It's like video delivery infrastructure, global CDNs, and email. These are problems that I am super happy to allow uh, companies to handle. I mean, if you ask me the set of technologies I'm using or like what I actually built, it's very small. Like, it's probably smaller than you think it is. Because like, I, I want to hear that. Sure. The actual stuff that I actually built, I, I happened to have been building a framework myself for the past year or something called Toast. And I knew that what I wanted was to not have to worry about actively running servers as much as possible. Yeah. So ton of it is just pre-rendered through Toast. And I use that for all of the content and stuff like that. You can get to all of the Rust Adventure stuff via Google, all of the writing, all of the blog posts, all of the stuff like that. You cannot access the videos. Yeah but you can access all of the written content. And like, that's short aside, that's really important to me. It's really important for me to like give access to people who actually need it and are willing to go through a little bit more effort to get at it. Like speaking, you could probably get a lot of the information, if not most, mm -hmm. just by, by spelunking and doing a little bit of legwork and, and, and mm -hmm. discovering it in text form. So some, you lose some convenience, but the meat of it is still there. Yeah. 
I think yeah, for awesome. me, like the curation and all of that is like valuable to pay for. And like, if you want Absolutely. me to do more of it, like I need the money. So like at some point buy it. But like, I remember being a young programmer or whatever mm -hmm. and not being able to afford any of this stuff. So like, I, it's really important to me to make it accessible to people who actually need it, even if it's not like everything, even if it's not like perfect, even if they don't have the user account or whatever. So it's uh, basically all of that is statically rendered and just like up there. It's hard to get to. Also easier technically, right? Like you don't have to even think about how yeah. you're going to protect it or hide it or prevent mm -hmm. people from sneaking glimpses. It's just like, it doesn't matter. I it's had, just there. I had somebody submit, like try to get a security bounty for like, hey, we can access your content. And I was like, <laughs> feature. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's really all I built. And then I built some like serverless functions to handle various things. But like everything else is Mux for video delivery, Mux's integration for video player, and analytics and stuff like that. And then the payments are Stripe checkout, the user authentication is Cognito and stuff like that. But like, there's like, I'm not building the infrastructure myself, I'm building the it's kind of like, kind of why I call it like a product and not like a platform like we were talking before, because it's a thing for me built on top of a bunch of platforms and infrastructure, yeah. right? Like AWS, to me, definitively platform, like it's powering so many other businesses, right? So like I'm standing on top of those things and like the pure, the amount of stuff that I actually did for uh, Rust Adventure, like I'm hosting all my repos on GitHub and they're all open source, by the way. So like if you are a person who wants to dig and access the stuff, you can get access to the stuff. Like the code is there. All of the blog posts are even in the commits. So if you clone the repo, you get access. I recently saw somebody else on Twitter talking about like somebody tried to translate their course or whatever uh, and posted a translation. And they were like, can you take that down? And like, you know, like I, I would be concerned about that getting out of date and stuff. And they're like, there are reasons that I would not want like it spread around in the way that it's being spread around there. But like when it comes down to it, if it makes it more accessible to people, I think in the end, it's all a positive because in the end, people want to pay for content that helps them. People want to support people who are helping them get done what they need to get done with their life. I don't think that needs to be a thing that I need to worry about, right? The occasional person who like might have would have paid for it might get it like, oh, well, I'm still making plenty off of it. There's useful convenience to having the user account. There's useful convenience to getting access to the videos. There's useful convenience to me being able to continue to do this thing that you are benefiting from. And I think that drives basically everything about Rust Adventure at this point. The only line that we've ever drawn, because like it's just silly and it's hard to combat and and often fruitless and frustrating. The only like sometimes we'll get people wholesale uploading to YouTube and mm -hmm. we make the effort to have that pulled down from YouTube because it feels like it should be free. Like it you the people that are consuming it don't know that they're consuming it in a way that they shouldn't like pirate sites i don't worry yep. about because everybody that's on a pirate site knows exactly what they're doing and they're not your <laughs> customers anyway so i don't really care what you're doing because you're just stealing from yourselves but like when it goes up on youtube wholesale i'm like okay well i'll do the i have a script that, that builds the spreadsheet that youtube requires to have that sort of thing removed and and yeah. that is that's like the line for me but like there's you know like i agree with you like if somebody's doing a translation maybe can i just pay you for that and we'll put it on the official channels 
like that yeah. sort of thing, right? Like that's, and then I find a way to keep it updated or something rather than have it go out of date and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, like this is a need that people have, so maybe we can just service that need instead of of fighting it or or wanting it to go away. So, I think the the really easy example of this that I just saw recently is Nintendo just took down I don't know a bunch of stuff off of one of these like music reupload channels for like Mario Kart theme songs and stuff like that, but they don't have it up on their own channel, yeah, so no nobody can it. listen to it, right? Like, like yeah. that to me is the the line. Like, if you're, you're going to re-upload it, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, if it's all of my stuff is on YouTube anyway, you can go through and view all of like the early content, early versions of the content, all of the stuff as I was figuring everything out. Mm-hmm. It's all on YouTube. It's all freely available. It's all there. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, right. I stream a lot of it, right? So, like, I don't know. It like get, I would prefer people get it from the source that like people credit me and stuff like that. That's kind of what I care about. Like. I did the stuff and don't re-upload it under your name and then (laughs) not let it get back to me. Like, don't cut me out of the equation and then try to resell it. That's a line for me. But like, don't. But I want people to have access. It's important. I think we we share that desire. This is the last question. And I'm curious what your answer will be. Do you have any audacious goals in terms of of your teaching or, or course development or the course delivery mechanisms that you have employed? Audacious goals. Like I said, I have some stuff that I'm working on currently where you will be able to like run rust on the site in the course to like do that language level kind of stuff. Oh, cool. You can't really do that for like CLIs and stuff. I mean, like you could, but like it doesn't have the same impact. Like you can't run a game on the website mm-hmm. through compiling it for somewhere else or whatever. It doesn't really make sense to do that. But for like rustlings, like almost exorcism-y type stuff, like language level syntax and small exercises, those are all going to be like, you can write some Rust in the browser and run it and run the tests and get the feedback. Building that? Yes. That is a thing that I currently have in prototype mode. So that should be coming at some point. It'll probably come out like as I start shipping the language stuff on the site. Right now, a lot of the language level content is going to YouTube because I have ideas of how it should be presented, but I want to make sure that they are the ones that should go into the workshop on the site. And that's going to be like free leader content because I don't think that the language level stuff, I think there's so much language level stuff for Rust out there there that it doesn't really make sense for me to like charge for that, but it makes a lot of sense for me to like have that be a thing. Right. It's your perspective and it'll be like a, a direct conduit into like, this is how we are going to do things here. So you can, it's like a primer at that point, I would think. Yeah, for sure. And then there's also like, I, I don't just do Rust, right? And like, I never really have just done JavaScript either. And I have wider vision around like, yeah, so I do a bunch of serverless stuff for Rust. But if I have already done all of the instructional design for like the serverless side of it, then it's less work for me to do that also for JavaScript or something, right? Like something else I have expertise in. So when you have a serverless course on the market, will you then have a platform? I'm just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) Call it what you will. It's fine. I really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for sharing uh, your experience. And and I I think it's great what you're doing. It sounds like if people are interested in Rust, um, following you on YouTube would probably be a really good idea. Uh, And then maybe Mm. exploring Rust adventures. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Cheers.